0: Welcome to the Global Energy and Environmental Law Podcast. My name is Mayanna Dellinger. I'm an Associate Professor of Law with the University of South Dakota School of Law. Today, I have the great honor and pleasure of interviewing Stefan Schaefer. Stefan Schaefer is a political scientist interested in the history, philosophy, and politics of science and technology. He leads a research group on climate engineering at the Institute for Advanced Sustainability Studies in Potsdam, Germany. He was a guest researcher at the Berlin Social Science Center from 2009 to 2012 and a fellow of the Robert Bosch Foundation's Global Governance Futures program in 2014 to 15. He is a contributing author of the Fifth Assessment Report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. He's also lead author of the European Transdisciplinary Assessment of Climate Engineering Report and a chair of the steering committee of the climate climate engineering conference series. He holds a doctorate in political science from Freie Universität Berlin. So welcome. Thank you. So these technologies that you call geoengineering broadly, are they currently being implemented or are they more speculative?
1: No, they're purely speculative at this stage. So uh, all the discussions that take place around geoengineering are about speculative futures. Um, we we envision a certain uh, future that might involve uh, geoengineering the climate, and then discuss the contours of what that future looks like. And of course, there's multiple futures uh, that are being constructed along those lines. But everything that is uh, currently discussed in this realm is so far hypothetical, right? So these these futures exist in some ways in the presence in the presence. So uh, as as imaginaries, but also as say, uh, back-of-the-envelope calculations, as computer models and simulations, as topics for discussion groups, focus groups, and questionnaires, as topics for assessment reports, but they're not uh, ready-to-go infrastructure in any material sense or even in any epistemic or sociopolitical sense, right? So the knowledge that would be required as an infrastructure for implementing a geoengineering technology, even that knowledge isn't yet uh, developed to the extent where the technology could be reliably implemented, and neither is, of course, the uh, material infrastructure or the political infrastructure that you would need, like the decision-making processes, the governance processes.
0: That's interesting. That's both, though, uh, in brief follow-up, just both good and bad news in a way, because we need to do something soon. And so it might be good news for those people that are very sort of scared of uh, climate engineering that these things are not right around the corner, but at the same time, it's bad news for the climate because time passes by and we're not really really there yet and we need to be fairly soon, right?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, whether it's bad news for the climate, uh, I'm not sure that we're figuring out right now, right? That's where we need to develop more knowledge on whether geoengineering can actually be good news for the climate. Um, and I'd say the opportunity that arises in from, from the situation of geoengineering existing as speculative futures rather than as operational infrastructures uh, is that these speculative futures can still be, be formed and shaped and redirected by uh, publics and academics working together with policymakers and uh, having a conversation about the futures that we want to de- to have and to mm-hmm. develop for ourselves.
0: Mm-hmm. And at least learn more about it and the potential right. benefits and, and right. risks right. Right. also.
1: Absolutely, yeah, and, and to have a conversation on what is a benefit and what is a risk, right, because those things are natural givens.
0: Right, that's right. So why geoengineering? Is this simply inevitable in today's world?
1: Well, no, certainly not. Um, developing and, and implementing a technology is, of course, always a choice, and a political choice, and that's important to keep in mind because uh, there's no necessity uh, associated with developing or implementing climate engineering. It's clearly... Uh, one response option that we might choose to look into, whether it can provide us uh, some some benefits that other response options can, uh, while also, of course, assessing the uh, risks and the possible side effects associated with climate engineering. Um, But it's not a necessity. Um, It might become, at some stage, perhaps uh, the only possibility for limiting temperature rise to the uh, temperature targets that were agreed in Paris, Uh, particularly, of course, 1.5 degrees, but uh, possibly in the not-too-distant future, also 2 degrees. Um, But also those are politically decided upon goals. So, uh, 2 degrees Celsius or 1.5 degrees Celsius is not somehow a a necessity, is not an inherently uh, better climate state than any other climate state. It's the politically chosen climate state. That was chosen for good reasons and for scientific reasons, Uh, but of course other decisions and other metrics are also possible.
0: But it doesn't seem like right now, at least with the emissions gap, that we'll be able to reach that limit unless we, we think either really creatively and really quickly or uh, perhaps start using some climate engineering uh, solutions. Well, I
1: mean, there, there are still pathways that uh, climate modelers and economic modelers show us uh, might allow us to achieve uh, limiting temperature rise to 2 degrees Celsius um, that, of course, may change in the future. Uh, So at some point, the emissions budget will simply be spent, the budget that allows us to expect that we will, with some reasonable certainty, stay below 2 degrees Celsius. And then indeed, uh, some of the proposals that are currently subsumed under this umbrella term climate engineering uh, may become useful even in uh, trying to limit the impacts of climate change. But of course, the verdict on that is still out. And uh, the research that we currently have available, the knowledge that we've produced uh, on climate engineering technologies doesn't suffice to give us uh, any certainty that this could be could potentially be a useful uh, uh, policy response to climate change.
0: Interesting. So I'll ask this question of you as I have of others that uh, with whom I've talked about climate change uh, and uh, geoengineering solutions that there's a great deal of skepticism, uh, maybe not um, as much among uh, scientists and uh, and attorneys or uh, academians rather, but certainly among the general public that, uh, that we might not be able to control it, um, if you will. So what would give us rise to think that we could appropriately both implement and manage uh, uh, geoengineering experiments, given our inability to control something as relatively simple as the CO2 emissions uh, themselves with their known effects?
1: Right. Well, I mean, first off, I'd say that controlling CO2 emissions is, is in fact incredibly difficult, right? I mean, CO2 emissions are the result of a very complex, decentralized, global, sociotechnical infrastructure and uh can't just be turned off there's no central valve where you can control the co2 emissions that reach the atmosphere mm-hmm. i'd also question the divide between uh scientists or academics more broadly and uh and publics i think academics are also very skeptical mm-hmm. of of uh, climate engineering mm-hmm. and very aware of the ways mm-hmm. in which their own work is mm-hmm. sociopolitically entangled right mm-hmm. the sociopolitical dimensions and implications that their work carries and um, I think there's a general skepticism that this could actually be uh, controlled. Of course, there's uh, several that believe uh, that might be more possible or more likely to be uh, possible than others. So there's uh, deep skeptics and perhaps some uh, more uh, optimistic academics and also among the public, of course. Uh, but I think generally you can really see a skepticism running through both the academic community and the publics that engage with this subject. Uh, as to whether uh, geoengineering, climate engineering technologies could be effectively controlled and deployed to the uh, ends that we now uh, conceive of for them. Also, of course, it's important to uh, be clear about what one talks about when one talks about climate engineering or geoengineering. So there's a a multitude of uh, proposals subsumed under this umbrella term. And uh, when we talk about the difficulty to uh centrally control or implement a technology, uh, climate engineering technology, Then, what's usually referred to are proposals for reflecting sunlight back into space. Right? So what we call solar radiation management, solar geoengineering technologies. Uh, and, and those could potentially be deployed from a single location, right? Uh, also by a single actor, by implication. Uh, and would have global effects that would manifest rather quickly uh, compared to the effects of, of CO2 emissions on the climate. And uh, that's what makes them difficult to control. The other set of technologies, technologies for removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, are also potentially difficult to control, but in different ways. So uh, for removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, you would need, again, a large infrastructure. This couldn't be done from a single point source. You would need to have a large distributed infrastructure uh, that removes carbon from the atmosphere. And then different problems come into focus. So for example, how do you incentivize... Uh, companies in the end uh, who would be uh, removing carbon from the atmosphere how would you create a market uh, for removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and then how do you make sure that uh, the technologies associated with that uh, with that process uh, don't have any negative impacts right so one of the most widely spread proposals is to Uh, grow fast-growing biomass that during its growing phase removes carbon from the atmosphere to then burn it in in power plants for energy generation and capture and sequester the uh, resulting CO2 emissions. Now, of course, there you really want to make sure that wherever you grow that biomass, you're not in competition with land that would otherwise be used for for growing food, right, for agricultural products. We've seen uh, what that can lead to in 2007, 2008 when uh, the biodiesel uh, subsidies really removed uh, food production from agricultural land and replaced it with biodiesel.
0: Yeah, so exactly. So there's a lot of uh, different stakeholders in this process, as you're mentioning yourselves, That, uh, and you are cor- correct that a lot of them may still be skeptical, whether uh, academians or otherwise. Um, so some of those stakeholders are, as you said, uh, the scientific sector, the academic sector, private people, of course, and their organizations in the form of companies, uh, farmers, and so on and so forth. How do you make sure that all the relevant stakeholders in this discussion and in the decision-making uh, process get involved uh, effectively?
1: Right. Well, I mean, that depends on how you define rele- relevant stakeholders, right? So you could say from from some... Uh, Democratic theory perspectives that in the end, a decision that affects everyone uh, needs to account for everyone that it affects, which is then everyone, right? So, and that's of course, I mean, if, if you want the direct input of individuals into such a process, that makes it impossible, right? You can't get the direct input from everyone on the planet. Right, right. So, but there's of course other theories of democracy that have, uh, you know, that like representative democracy that uh, have different standards for evaluating Mm. what the relevant stakeholders are and how they can be represented in the process that leads to the decision of implementing such a technology.
0: The notions of uh, public participation and bottom-up lawmaking, though, aren't we seeing sort of a shift in people's attention uh, in that respect, at least in the United States, where, with all due respect, but people don't even really bother to go vote even in presidential elections, only 55% voted recently. So how do you make sure then that uh, it doesn't become a situation where the most interested parties, companies perhaps, uh, have a relatively larger say compared to the you know the general population, population so to speak? That may simply, in busy times when people are busy with kids and jobs that take long hours and so forth, uh, and Facebook and whatnot take an interest, they might simply not bother. Or or how do you see that dichotomy?
1: Right. I mean, I think that's certainly a challenge that any uh, socio-technical project faces. Right? And uh, it can't be ensured from the outset that those standards will be met. And of course, then, there needs to be some uh, mechanisms in, in the governing process that allow us to readjust as we move ahead and to uh, seek broader input if uh, the input that is uh, involved in the process so far is uh, unsatisfactory. Um,
0: yeah, and you're right. That is certainly not a problem that's that's unique to uh, climate geoengineering, but to democracy itself.
1: Right, us. and it also depends on again what uh, what climate engineering proposal you're interested in. Right. Yeah, right. So. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, but you do see that it's important to involve uh, the general public and not just sort of the scientific. Oh, absolutely,
1: absolutely. And like I said, I yeah. think the the academics, the scientists working on geoengineering, are very aware of their socio political of the socio-political implications of their work and uh, involving publics and um, seeking to understand how publics think about geoengineering proposals, uh, what their preferences are, uh, has been an integral part of the work that's being done in the field through focus groups, through uh, questionnaires, through uh, opinion polls.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting. So speaking about um, implications and perhaps something, uh, something else that hasn't been discuss- discussed so much in this debate recently, uh, and that is national security implications. So in one of your writings, uh, uh, or at least one of the writings that you've contributed to, um, I believe you said that the potential for the uptake of climate engineering research by defense departments, militaries, and associated complexes of actors Uh, might require uh, a more rational, strategic, and long-term outlook towards climate engineering research and climate change more general from sort of a military's uh, national security standpoint. Can you elaborate on what some thoughts are in this context?
1: Right. I mean, um, of course, uh, militaries, for example, would be interested in... uh, the potentially critical infrastructure that you would need to uh, develop for implementing a climate engineering technology, especially a technology that would uh, seek to reflect sunlight, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, the infrastructure that um, you would need to develop for implementing that technology would, of course, you know, require some form of uh, protection, and uh, militaries can uh, provide that protection. And what i what i don't think though what i think is often uh, perhaps uh, overemphasized in uh, discussions of geoengineering is the potential that militaries mm-hmm. themselves develop an interest in conduct, conducting geoengineering right mm-hmm. in conducting in reflecting sunlight away mm-hmm. from earth to uh, control the global climate and the reason i think that risk is potentially overblown is mm-hmm. uh because I can't see the motivation that militaries would have to control the global climate, right? Right. Um, And In any case, the technologies that uh, are under discussion here cannot be fine-tuned to the degree that they would, say, benefit one nation uh, to the detriment of another nation. Right. Uh, So you would have, and this is a a quite fascinating uh, characteristic of especially solar radiation management technologies, you would have a situation where you knew to some extent what you were doing. You'd be uh, lowering global average temperatures. At least that's what your model tells you you're doing, uh, your computer climate model. Uh, but you can't really know the precise impacts, right, which right. Uh, creates a situation where you also don't really know what the distribution of uh, benefits and costs is that results from the solar radiation management uh, technology as opposed to, say, climate change uh, as it you know, as it develops due to CO2 emissions, of course.
0: But isn't that, to push back a little bit Mm -hmm. on your statements right now, uh, isn't that indeed what could the unknown, the effects that could uh, cause some upheaval that, you're right, we don't know about that, could then as a secondary step lead to perhaps some international conflicts that could lead to, if not outright wars, then certainly some conflict, whether rational or not. Not all wars are rational. Oh,
1: absolutely. (laughs) Of course. And and I fully agree. I think uh, if, because under even under a geoengineered climate, uh, you would still be experiencing the world would still be experiencing climate impacts, right? I mean, extreme weather events mm-hmm. would right. still be happening, and, right. and your hope would be that they'd be happening less severe or less often than they would in an uh, in a counterfactual scenario mm-hmm. where you wouldn't be deploying
0: mm-hmm.
1: a geoengineering technology, but they'd still occur. And of course, in, when you, if you don't know what the precise cause for this extreme weather event, say uh, uh, a strong drought is, um, then you might attribute it to an ongoing SRM intervention, solar mm-hmm. radiation management intervention. Uh, and uh, seek to hold those accountable that are responsible for the intervention. So that's, I think, where the the real potential for conflict comes in. It's uh, less in the uh, less conflict about what deployment should be, but how to compensate for damages that are suffered under deployment. Whether those damages can be attributed directly to SRM or not, which, uh, as far as we know, and as far as our knowledge currently allows us to, uh, can't be done. Uh, the direct attribution is basically impossible. Um, so there'd need to be some form of compensation for those that mm-hmm. suffer damages, mm-hmm. uh, even if they can't be directly attributed to a climate engineering intervention. Right. And that, of course, mm-hmm. is an extremely challenging, extremely challenging uh, uh, thing for international politics, too.
0: It is indeed right now, as uh, the nation parties to the Paris Agreement have themselves said flat out pretty much that they're not, uh, they don't want to be held liable for any loss and damage in right. connection with climate change. Right. So surely they don't want that in... In connection with climate engineering as well. But shifting gears a little bit to uh, some other justice considerations, um, how do you think you would uh, distribute benefits and costs in a fair way in, in this context?
1: Well I think you have to, to the best of, of your knowledge, if if you were ever to um, implement a solar geoengineering, I'll talk about solar geoengineering mm-hmm. for now, because I think mm-hmm. that's the kind of global scale technology that, that uh, it seems to me you're most interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, You, you, you'd have to, to the best of your knowledge, uh, fine tune the interventions so that you would hope from your computer models and from the predictions uh, that you can develop from those, uh, the projections of future climate states, uh, that the benefits and costs are distributed fairly, right? Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. uh, you'd have uh, some metrics for uh, global justice. Uh, that you could use to determining what is a fair distribution of, of costs and benefits, and then of course it 's a political process to agree on those mm-hmm. um, that the difficulty is again to make sure that if costs do occur after implementation of a soil geoengineering mm-hmm. from extreme weather events say, and those costs can 't be directly attributed to the intervention that you still have some process for uh, um, for for uh, compensating that uh, those costs to uh, those that suffered them, in some fair way, uh, otherwise I think you'd really that would really have a strong potential for international conflict right, if, if right. there were no compensation mechanism.
0: So that's the geopolitical challenge. That the is politics. the geopolitical challenge. I agree. Yeah, yes, to, yes for, for parties to accept that yes. uh, that damages risk. Um, where do you think uh, to take it back to the sort of practical aspect? Where should uh, experiments that I gather from these discussions that's still necessary? Where should that uh, take place? Should it be you know at the institutional level, universities? If so, in what countries? Where do you? Which actor or actors do you see being the most relevant in this context? Right.
1: Um, well, for, for conducting experiments, I think it's important that uh, scientists recognize uh, that it's important to include publics in the uh, discussions of and decision-making process on experiments, as has happened in uh, a climate engineering experiment that was planned in the UK, and then in the end it didn't proceed. Uh, but there we had a strong inclusion of, uh, of of actors from outside of the direct scientific Uh, realm in the decision-making process on that experiment. Um, The governance of experiments, of course, I mean, there are established procedures for governing experiments, and then it depends on uh, the scale of the experiment that you're talking about. So Mm -hmm. uh, useful knowledge can be generated from very small-scale experiments for Mm -hmm. which existing governance processes are in place. Mm -hmm. But then again, of course, as you move up and, and you increase the scale of your experiment and you increase, say, the geographic or the temporal extent, Um, then you would need to think about whether uh, uh, processes become important that are possibly uh, beyond uh, the reach of universities Mm -hmm. and scientists. So then you need to think about governmental involvement and possibly intergovernmental
0: involvement. And that would be necessary if these experiments were to be scaled up to a to a broader level than just lab levels. And you said that there are already uh, established procedures in that context. Uh, which are those that you you think are the most? Well, relevant? you have
1: you have you have from from the very basic like peer review to uh, environmental impact assessments, uh, and and there's a variety of uh, environmental impact assessments or a variety of ways to conduct environmental impact assessments. That can also take into account uh, social questions, um, political questions.
0: Okay, so that's still more at the subnational level, state level in the United States. What about internationally? Because again, climate change obviously has international relevance. So, so in what forum or fora do you think uh, the, the, that these things should be discussed?
1: Experimentation?
0: Or implementation.
1: Or implementation. Mm-hmm. Well, I think... I mean, uh, for implementation, obviously, you have uh, the UNFCCC, the uh, Framework Convention on Climate Change, uh, which has very broad inclusion and is the one accepted international governing body for questions concerning the climate. Mm -hmm. So I think in the end, uh, involvement of the UNFCCC in any decision to possibly implement uh, climate engineering is absolutely paramount. Mm -hmm. Um, Then, of course, there's also other international bodies that have addressed geoengineering. Um, like the Convention on Biological Diversity, the CBD, or the um, London Convention and London Protocol, the LCLP. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, I think what's currently emerging and what is likely to, uh, in the future, possibly form uh, the, the governance structure for geoengineering is a regime complex rather than a specific dedicated institution.
0: Can you explain what to the listeners that may not be familiar with that complex? But what you mean by that?
1: Well, a regime complex is uh, a multitude of institutions, uh, formal and non-formal, at multiple levels, at the from the local to the regional, state, national, and international level, that address aspects of uh, a certain practice uh, like geoengineering.
0: Great. Going back to sort of where we started with all this uh, and perhaps ending this conversation uh, on a little bit of an up note, uh, hopefully what do you think do you think this is just irrational fears that people have towards all this uh, geoengineering? I mean we humankind has had fears of technology before is it maybe something that uh, that as a as humankind we should learn to embrace as we have other technologies in the hope of getting hopefully to solve the climate change problem using technology as well
1: oh no <laughs> I don't I don't think it's irrational at all I'm afraid myself <laughs> of the uh, well of, of the I mean the the prospect to intentionally intervene mm-hmm. into global scale processes that are highly complex and uh, not fully understood is, of course, daunting and uh, and scary, uh, rightly so. And I think apart from the very you know the, the, the practical questions of what are the risks and can we justify taking those risks as opposed to entering into a world, perhaps a two degrees world, or even a three degrees world. Um, we also have very uh, fundamental questions uh, at stake here uh, that go beyond risk assessment, like, you know, what, what is the kind of world that we want to live in? Do we want to live in a world where the global climate is under human control? Is that a desirable state for us to exist in? And how would that change our understanding of ourselves and
0: of nature? Yeah, interesting, interesting questions in this context, but hopefully we'll at least get to curb climate change one way or the other. Otherwise, the alternatives seem even worse, don't they?
1: Absolutely. I mean, uh, reducing emissions has to be the absolute priority. Yes. And uh, it, it is absolutely high time that, uh, the, uh, that actions follow the words that were uh, you now decided in Paris.
0: Very well said. Thank you very much for your time.
1: And thank you. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to the Global Energy and Environmental Law Podcast. Today, I had the great honor and pleasure of interviewing Dr. Stephen Schaefer of the Institute for Advanced Sustainability Studies.